loving, holy, wonderful Father who brought this world and us into being and who has spoken and yet speaks. Lord Jesus, Lord and Saviour, living Word, Holy Spirit, the presence of and witness to Jesus in this place, in this world, in our lives today. Be with us, speak with us, tell us what you want us to know and how you wish us to respond to your word this evening. Amen. Um, I'd be interested to know, just hands up really, how many of us uh, have just come off the, uh, been at the weekend with Simon Ponsonby, that's been mentioned, this I think, so that's really quite a majority. I know there's at least one person who's never been to Trinity before, and you're very welcome, and maybe one or two others for all I know, but you're very welcome too. And I was wondering, the first question was, is it always like this? Well, <laughs> no, not quite, although it could be. Um, <laughs> Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's good to know, it's great to know that um, uh, the God, the Saviour, the Spirit, the Scriptures uh, of which we have been considering and uh, with, with Simon uh, since Friday evening is, is still around, still with us, um, and is not going uh, to leave us. Whatever our numbers, uh, and have tired, some of you are feeling from your exertions over that weekend, uh, God is with us, and that's good. Um, I'm not in a very good place just at the moment. I'm not in a very good place just at the moment. I wonder if you've heard anybody use that expression recently. I think you probably have. I have. Um, uh, perhaps it would describe you just at the moment. I'm not in a very good place just at the moment. For some people, for some members of our congregation, it's literally true. They have been pulled away uh, from their homeland, from their own culture and language and families, uh, living in this strange, strange place called Norwich. Um, they might well describe themselves as not being in the right place just at the moment, not being a good place not in the place that they felt they should or wished to be in. For others of us, it is more emotional and relational. We're perhaps not in a good place in terms of our feelings about who we are within our own skin or our relationships with our, our, our close ones, either our colleagues, our friends, our families. You know, the teenager who says, I love my cat more than I love my mother. <laughs> Um, not in a good place, perhaps, with regard to relationships and feelings about who we are and where we fit. Uh, maybe not in a good place with regard to our walk with God, that maybe God feels, seems far away, or rather we are far away from God, not really on speaking terms with him just at the moment, and perhaps haven't been for quite a long time, not in a very good place. That expression could have been used, even though it's one of these current expressions that one hears uh, quite frequently, it seems to me, these days. It's a phrase that could have been used by the, uh, the nation of Judah in the days of Isaiah. Now, I've got a few 
zappy things <laughs> about my person. And uh, whereas Alan, last Sunday evening, for those of you who are here, gave us a little bit of the geography, there's a little bit of the history. The entire Old Testament uh, there. But uh, another zappy thing I've got will enable you to point. <laughs> um, don't, I was told not to shine this in my eye. Uh, so, what I really want to point out to you there is we've got the, the northern ten tribes of Israel have already, through their own disobedience to God, they've been overcome by the Assyrian Empire and they have been dissipated. They're out, they're gone. Uh, <laughs> well, that's gone too, I know. I'll come back. Yeah, you can see I can do it if I try. And the southern two tribes of Judah, which includes Jerusalem down there, they're continuing, they're limping on with a succession of, well, kings, leaders, rulers of mixed quality. There's good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, and there's thoroughly evil lots like Manasseh, who, as Alan was mentioning last Sunday evening, was probably the king under whom the prophet Isaiah was killed. Uh, But, uh, so you can see Isaiah then is prophesying from within uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he is looking forward to, well, if you can say looking forward, he is anticipating the demise of the kingdom of Judah. Can you see there in whatever that date that is on its side? Five, six, you can see it better than I can. Um, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, and the, uh, the leading off into captivity of the people of Judah uh, into to Babylon, the Babylonian exile. But now by the time we reach Isaiah chapter 40, which begins with the word comfort, by the time we reach Isaiah 40, uh, Isaiah is now looking forward to the end of captivity and for God to regather his chosen people, and to continue fulfilling the promises that began back with um, Abraham, the promise uh, uh, that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Uh, Just as a side note, I'm I'm concerned lest there might be a young person here who goes off to study the Bible or to study theology, and the first thing that's said when they reach the book of uh, of Isaiah was, well, of course, you know the second part of Isaiah, chapter 40 onwards. Well, that wasn't really written by Isaiah. That was written by a later prophet. And I just want to say to you, just in passing, I'm actually okay with that. Um, I'm okay with, with that theory, providing Isaiah is... Permitted is, is that the word? Along with the allow Isaiah to speak the word of God. Now, there's a particular thing I want to say later about the way in which Isaiah speaks the word of God that we must allow if we're to place ourselves under Scripture, under the authority of Scripture, um, depending on whether we think that, whether scholars think, as some of them do, all written by Isaiah. Uh, and or whether the second part was written by somebody, some unknown but very great prophet, about 150 years later. Um, if you want uh, 10 reasons for and 10 reasons against each of those theories, see me later, but otherwise just accept that as a mention, because I don't want that to be the first time you hear of that kind of possibility uh, when you go off to college um, 
or hear it from, uh, uh, from others. We are aware of these, some of these th- uh, theories and so on. That's, that's by the by. That's the background uh, of um, the history there and the situation into which Isaiah is speaking, this portion of Isaiah is speaking. Would you turn with me then back to the chapter that Anne uh, read most of, which is uh, chapter 41? These people then, Judah, are not in a good place. Isaiah is looking forward to the time, anticipating the time when they're in exile um, uh, because of their own sin and disobedience before God and so on. They're not in a good place. But he's here to speak a word of comfort and reassurance. Three questions um, that I want to pose with regard to this chapter. Um, and, the, uh, and the questions that I want to pose here is, first of all, who is asking the questions here? Who's asking the questions in this chapter, especially at the beginning? The second question I want to ask is, who is in control here? And the third question I want to ask uh, and answer in this chapter is, who can be trusted? Who's asking the questions? Who is in control? And who can be trusted? Now, I know what you're thinking. This is a Sunday evening. We are Christian people in church. Presumably, the answer to all three of those questions is God. Let's just go home. But the way that we arrive at those answers, given the fact that the people of God were not in a good place, is, I think, critically important and become important for all of us, including those of us who have a particular need, like Anne, to hear this word today. First of all, who is asking the questions here? Look at, uh, with me, please, at verse 1 and then verse 21. Verse 1 says, Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. The Lord is speaking there. And then in verse 2, he's asking the question, Who? Who has done all this stuff? Who is doing all these things? And that line of questioning is, uh, happens again in verse 21. Do you see that? Um, uh, uh, present your case, set forth your arguments, says Jacob, saying, bring your idols, and so on and so forth. The Lord is holding a tribunal. He is calling uh, the, the far-flung nations, the islands, to attend this tribunal and to tell him, the Lord, what they've got, what faith, what trust, what belief they've got, and how they can account for the way things are in this world. Who's guiding them? Who's ruling them? Who is asking the questions? It's not the nations. It's God calling the nations to account and asking them questions. It's God who's quizzing the nations. I think there's something approaching a spiritual law inside this idea, that it is God interrogating or questioning the nations. It seems to me from Scripture that God is pretty much okay if his intimate friends ask him questions. Argue with him sometimes. Negotiate, seek agreement with him. God will do that. Did you notice, as Anne read, or can you just look down to verse 8 and see that Abraham is mentioned? 
as God's friend. Abraham was God's friend. Abraham was able to question God. Do you remember that incident back in Genesis 18? God has said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Sodom is so evil, I'm going to destroy uh, Sodom. And Abraham says, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom? Surely you'll, you'll spare uh, spare that city if, you, if I can find 50 righteous people in there and God says yeah okay 50 people for 50 people righteous people I'll spare Sodom and Abraham says well what about less than 50 God says yeah for 45 for, find 45 righteous people in Sodom I'll spare it 20 yep 10 okay <laughs> I mean what a cheek <laughs> but Abraham was the friend of God And he could do that. He could speak to God and have a discussion, have a conversation, have a debate with God. Ask God some questions. And that happens throughout Scripture. God's friends are quite often crying out with questions to God. And quite often their questions are, why? (laughs) And how long? There's two questions that God's people are often coming up with. Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen to us? And how long must we put up with this, with, with this situation? You find that in Scripture. God's friends can do that. But God will not cooperate either with scepticism or idle curiosity. So that's why the first thing God says to these nations, these far-flung idolatrous nations in verse, in chapter, in verse 1 is be silent, be quiet, listen, listen to what I've got to say. I think there's a, a practical point here for our Christian apologetics. Do you know what I mean by Christian apologetics? Apologetics doesn't mean apologizing for the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It means being able and willing to give a reasoned defense or explanation of your Christian faith. Either to answer uh, the, uh, the, the questions of uh, sincere seekers or to uh, find ways of rebutting the objections of cynics and skeptics. That's Christian apologetics. And we should all have a hand in that activity, according to Peter. Uh, in his first epistle, uh, always be ready to give uh, an answer to anyone who asks you to explain the reason for the hope that you have. We should all be doing that to a lesser or greater extent, to be apologists, to defend and explain our faith. And much of our apologetics is what we call evidential, Christian evidences. Uh, the question might be, well, how can we know that the Gospels are reliable accounts of uh, the life of Jesus? Well, let's look at the Gospel of Luke and see what he has to say about his credentials, uh, what we can say about his credentials as a historian. How can we know that the best explanation for the empty tomb of Jesus is a resurrection of all things? Well, let's look at all the alternatives and see whether it fits the case. How do we explain the apparent character of God in the Old Testament with all those wars and things? You know, and a Christian apologist uh, may need to think their way through and have some responses to those kind of questions. And in fact, there's some of that kind of material on the Alpha Course. Some of the earlier sessions of the Alpha Course pose the question, is the Bible a trustworthy account of what God has said and done. That's good. I I like evidentialist uh, uh, Christian uh, apologetics. But there comes a point when the questions need uh, uh, need to stop and we need to face up to what God 
is saying to us. It's not only a question of, oh, I'm an atheist, do I believe in God? (laughs) To quote the title of the book, does God believe in you? That's the more important question. Not, am I interested in God? Is Is God interested in me? God holds each one of us to account. There's a phrase in Romans chapter 1 or 2 when Paul is discussing human sinfulness and rebellion against God. God. He says that every mouth may be stopped. This idea of confronting the living God and having nothing to say, no more objections, no more questions, just listening. God, what are you saying to me? Because it's God who's asking the questions. Because, you see, the gospel is not just a proposition to be debated. It's a summons that needs to be believed and a command to be, to be obeyed. The Bible talks about not simply believing the gospel, but obeying the gospel. It's God who's asking the questions here. I think it's a good reminder that there is an important ultimate place for that. Yes, come to God with our questions, our sincere questions, but then turn around and say, what is God saying to me and about me? That's the first question. Who is asking the questions? The second thing I want to pose from this chapter is, who is in control? Who is in control? We might well look at today's headlines... We might look at any day's headlines and simply ask the question, who is in control of that stuff? Is anybody in control? Random set of news, different countries, different people saying and doing different things, quite a lot of them not very nice. Is there any control there today or any day when you look at what's happening around the world? Well, look at, in our chapter, at verse 2. The question, who has stirred up one from the east? And then verse 25. Again, the answer is, um, comes from God. I have stirred up this one who is from the east and, and, and from the north. There is a character emerging in this chapter of whom the writer, the prophet, will have more to say in subsequent chapters. And it reaches the point in chapter 44 and 45 where this character, this emerging conqueror, is named, is given a name, and his name is Cyrus. This Persian ruler would become the most powerful man in the known world. Uh, Just in colour there, if you can sort of make out that map, all of that is the Persian Empire, down into Egypt and Africa and Libya and so on, right over to the border of India, into um, uh, up to uh, the Caspian Sea and over to Greece and uh, and so on, and, and Turkey and so on. He was a mighty, mighty ruler, was Cyrus, king of Persia. So you might suppose it's Cyrus who's in control. But God says, no, I raised that man up. And what Cyrus did was to, well, he hardly even conquered Babylon. Babylon just caved in. 
in front of Cyrus. And, um, and Cyrus had this kind of um, uh, attitude towards the nations he, uh, that he conquered that he then let the people of God go back home. So you have the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the, uh, the restoration and the rebuilding of the temple, all that kind of stuff. It was the edict of Cyrus that made all of that possible at the human level. But God is saying here, in anticipation, 150 years before it happened, <laughs> I'm in control of that. It's not Cyrus who's in control, it is the Lord. Israel is referred to as little Israel. Referred to as a worm, that's not really nice, is it? But, <laughs> it's little Israel's God who is in control. I mean, do you think that the Christian church today here in Norwich is a bit little, a bit weak? I mean, we may not have felt particularly little and weak this morning, praising God in large numbers and this kind of thing, but compared with the people around us, so many of whom seem not to know God or be interested in this kind of thing, do we not sometimes feel little and weak and helpless? But it's our God who is in control. That's what we're being taught and reminded here. And so we're being reminded here from Scripture that every world leader, and even Satan himself, is on a leash, on God's leash. Each and every one It's a hard thing to contemplate. That's what scripture teaches. Each and every one, however good or however evil, can go no further than God permits. It's taught throughout scripture, uh, this, uh, this idea. And it's kind of summed up in Revelation chapter 6. Have you heard of of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Say yes, speak to me. The four horsemen, not so much of the, let's call them the four horsemen of history, because that's really what they are. They're uh, the white horse of imperial conquest, the red horse of violence and war, the black horse of famine and hardship, the pale horse of disease and death, all the calamities and all the evils with which history is beset. And what that chapter teaches is it's the Lamb of God who has been placed, who's been recognized on his throne in chapter, in the previous chapter, chapter five, who is in control of even those powers. They do not move an inch until they are commanded to come. Those powers are powerless until they have been given power by the Lamb of God. I'm not saying that Christ causes these evils, but rather he bends them, he bends them all to his own gracious, eternal purposes. And Christ, as the stricken lamb, which is how he's presented in the previous chapter, chapter 5 of Revelation, as the stricken lamb, Jesus well knows how it works. Because on the cross... God took the very worst that humanity could do and turned it into a triumph of goodness and love and grace. Who is in control? Despite all appearances, 
God is in control. And so we come on to our third and last point. Who then can be trusted? Who can be trusted? Would you agree with me there's a, a crisis of trust today? A recent Mori poll said that four out of five people trust doctors, teachers, scientists, and judges to tell the truth. Two or three out of five trust, wait for it, television newsreaders, police, civil servants, and clergy. And only one in five trusts journalists and politicians to tell the truth. Doesn't surprise you, does it? That's according to a recent Mori poll, and maybe it's over-optimistic, I don't know. Um, a crisis of trust. I'm not saying it's completely new, but it is certainly very apparent these days. About And you hear people sometimes say, you can't trust anybody these days, can you? Can anybody be trusted? Can God be trusted? Certainly idols cannot be trusted. There's a big long polemic, repeat the polemic in these chapters of... Um, of Isaiah, including now our own chapter, verses 5 onwards and verse 21 uh, onwards. Now, if you listened as, uh, as Anne read and, and, and picked out the, the, the sarcasm that's going on here when Isaiah talks about the, the, the making of idols, there's a huge amount of human creativity of a certain kind and cooperation and encouragement and, and togetherness in putting together worthless idols cooperating in forgetting or being ignorant, willingly ignorant of God. But what these idols are powerless to do, verse 22, the Lord can do. And by the way, um, I mean, the obvious application of all this talk about why idols is for you to go home and go to that corner of your front room where you've set up your wooden or stone thing and put it in, you know, it's not... There are other kinds of idols... Humanity is, is, a, is a factory for making idols. Let me just briefly mention two without elaborating them. Scientism, the idea that science can solve and answer all of our questions, is idolatry because it can't. Because science can only study what has been created. It cannot study by its own legitimate methods the creator. And selfism which does creep into the church and Christian thinking, the idea that within myself I have all the resources I need is another form of modern idolatry. So don't imagine that idolatry simply belongs to two and a half thousand years ago. It doesn't. But what any idol is powerless to do, the Lord can do. And it's two things in particular picked out from this chapter. The Lord can interpret the past... And the Lord can predict the future. And so the Lord can say to us, look, I said that would happen, and it did. So now you can trust me when I say something else is going to happen, that it will happen. That's the way it works in this chapter. Look at verse 4. The Lord says, I am with the first of them and with the last. From beginning to end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. The Lord says he's not forgotten his promise to his friend Abraham, verse 8. The Lord says, I will, I will, I will, I will, seven times or more. He says, I will. And he can say that and we can believe that because he has fulfilled his word in the past, time and again. When he says, verse 15 and following, his downtrodden people will be triumphant, he means it. 
when he says in verse 17 and following that uh, their fortunes will be utterly transformed, he means it. Because what he says in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant has already come to pass. And so therefore what he says in Isaiah 65 about creating new heavens and earth will also come to pass. You can rely on this God. He is true to his word. He keeps bringing it about. And it is all summed up in Jesus Christ, for whom, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. The past is the guarantee of the future. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's what God has done in the past, will he not also give us all things with him? That's the present and the future, and that's the promise of God through his apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. God can be trusted. Still not in a good place? God's people were not in a good place, but they were being taught by this great and gracious promise to listen to God and his questions, to realize that God, despite all appearances of the contrary, is in control, and that God has fulfilled is fulfilling and will fulfill his word in that God you and I can trust. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are speaking God. May we learn to be quiet before you and to hear what you have to say to us and about us. We would not want to believe that you are God in charge of nations and rulers and kings and potentates and yet not be a God in control of us and your, as individuals and as gathered people here. And we would not want to say that you have proved trustworthy time and time again in the past and not uh, place our trust in you completely and forever. Grant us by your spirit to trust in you implicitly and to put us back in that place where you want us to be and us to be satisfied in you in whatever you have set before us to do. Amen.